0: Welcome to The Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow the TheEssential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, watch episodes on our YouTube channel, and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of the Essential Church Podcast.
1: Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt. And as you know, if you followed the podcast for any length of time, uh, we love talking about the Bible. And uh, we believe, as the Scripture says, that the Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. So the encounter with the text of Scripture changes our lives and it has the power to change the life of the church. And we love talking with people that are thinking about these things deeply. And so Daniel Grothy and I today interview uh, Cheryl Bridges Johns, who is a Pentecostal scholar of the highest caliber and has recently written a book called "Reenchanting the Text, discovering the Bible as sacred, dangerous, and mysterious. And we spend a half an hour talking with Cheryl about what it means to encounter the text of Scripture as a place of transformation, wherein the Holy Spirit makes our lives new. It's a wide-ranging conversation. We think that you're going to love Cheryl. We think that she's one of the great sages and elders of our generation, as we talk about it. She's a wise woman and a deep well. And this was one of our very fun interviews that we've done. So without further commentary from me, here's to the conversation. Well, we're here today with uh, one of our favorite humans, someone that we've admired from a distance for a long time, Cheryl Bridges Johns. And Cheryl, I got to tell you, when I was putting together the notes uh, for the podcast today, I went online to try to find a bio for you. And I found like 18 of them and 18 Bios wasn't doing a lot of work for me. And so uh, I decided to like write up a bio for you based on what I know about you and what I've seen in you. And so uh, I'm gonna read this, uh, and then uh, you tell me if you think that this is, uh, is accurate. So Cheryl Bridges Johns is an altogether too rare creature, a theologian who loves Jesus. She's a Pentecostal who believes in the wildness of the Spirit And she's an intellectual who believes that we're called to love God with all of our minds. She's taught in colleges and seminaries and churches for over 40 years, helping people understand how the mystery of God connects with the mystery of being human. She and her husband, Pastor Jackie David Johns, have spent their lives building up God's people. What do you think about that? Does that glove fit?
0: Yeah. Can you send it to me? <laughs> I will I will happily send it to you. Okay. So
1: personal note here. So I met Cheryl for the first time, gosh, what is it? It's 2023 now. So I met you about nine years ago at a conference mm-hmm. that we both spoke at together. And Daniel and I talk about this a lot, like who are the luminaries? Who are the sages? Who are the people who in our world are sort of carrying that sacred canopy of authority and holiness and wisdom And I just remember as soon as you started speaking, Cheryl, listening to you, I remember thinking, uh, this is a woman I can trust. This is a holy woman. And since that time, just following you on social media at a distance, that has proved true. Like, we've followed your work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to say that you're a model for us of how to do theology and ministry in a way that's winsome and wise, and uh, we're grateful for you. So Mm -hmm. thanks for being with us on the podcast today. Mm
0: -hmm. Thanks for having me here. You know, I've been following you, too, and... Mm -hmm. Um, both of you uh, are doing the kind of ministry that I believe is important to be done, uh, the way you integrate forms of ancient spirituality without throwing out some of the more contemporary expressions of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, that's so so wonderful to see how uh, both you and Daniel walk this path. And, um, yeah, I'm grateful for your ministry
1: Thank you. That's a huge compliment coming from you. Well, Cheryl's got a book coming out on May 16th uh, called Reenchanting the Text." So it's a book about the Bible discovering the Bible as sacred, dangerous, and mysterious, which is what we want to talk with her about today. But before we do that, Cheryl, uh, I'm always so curious about people's sense of call. And so I want to just ask you, um, like not too many young Pentecostal women, especially kind of of the older era grow up thinking, I want to be a theologian or a pastor one day. Um, and we both come from that world, so we've seen that. So I'm just curious, can you tell us a little bit of your sense of call and how that unfolded in your life?
0: Yeah. Um, I'm fourth-generation Pentecostal. You know, my local church was formed in 1907 by my great-grandmother, who was expelled from the Methodist Church. Um, and it's interesting that I'm teaching at a Methodist seminary right now, so full <laughs> circle in some ways. And um, it, it was a church where, uh, you know, uh, it was a safe place, uh, a sacred place, where I felt loved, and people would say, you know, we sense God's hand on your life, and then it would be followed mm-hmm. with, and can you?
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I did, you just do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Preached my first sermon at 16. And I just remember that standing behind that pulpit Mm -hmm. and that feeling that I had. Hmm. Um, So, but sense of calling, you know, I grew up in the 60s. Uh, I was born in 53, so I turned 70 this year. It was a a hard time for women to really, as much as there was freedom for women in Pentecostalism, as you two have alluded to, there was this also, um, let me use Richard Rohr's language. Some pretty tight holding containers,
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: and women were in the holding container of the prophetic. Um, they uh, were the prayer warriors. Yep. They were yep. the preachers. But uh, the the priestly kind of understanding uh. that we have of ministry uh. was not quite uh, seen as um, our space. Mm-hmm. So it, as I was struggling to determine, I knew God had his hand on my life. I really did. But what would that mean? Going to college, struggling with that. I sensed. Um, now I had a trip to Latin America in uh, seventy two, and changed my life. And so I thought, I just will be a missionary. There, that was a free space for women. You look mm-hmm. for the free spaces. Mm-hmm. Education uh, was a free mm-hmm. space. Um so I could be a professor or I could be uh, a missionary. And I thought, well, maybe I could be both. And um, I remember when I met Jackie and we were having uh, dinner one night and he looked across the table at me and said, I just don't think you have what it takes to be a single missionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew he was right. I, I was going to just—and again, it was the era of if you really wanted it, maybe God— uh, that, it wasn't God's plan. So it was lay <laughs> <Right>. alone. <laid home, laughs> of course, offered, of course. Um, give everything over, sacrifice. Sure. You had but, to hate it. Uh, yeah, but on the other hand, that whole—Jack and I were talking about this yesterday, This that whole idea of consecration, mm. of everything, of dying to the self, taking up your cross, I am thine, O oh Lord, mm-hmm. I miss that. Mm. It's not being integrated into discipleship. So I know there was over overuse of it, but— on the other hand, it was a sense of, you know, I give you my all, whatever it is, make yeah. it and whatever you give back to me, I'm, I'm grateful. So, you know, Jack and I married and went to grad school together at Wheaton and then uh, taught at a little Bible college in North Dakota for three years, and we loved it there. Um, went back to, to school, got our PhD at the Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, not the one that currently exists, but one before then. Mm-hmm. And, um was a good time of uh, our lives of flourishing academically and all. And we came to Cleveland. Uh, my husband became an associate at a church here. I began teaching at the Pentecostal hmm. seminary at that time. It was called the Church of God yes. School of Theology. And then he later joined us there. And sort of we became part of the what was later known as the Cleveland School of Pentecostal Theology. And there was a cadre of us. Um, of of boomers who had kind of gone through college together and um god sort of god gathered us in the mid 80s mm-hmm. and we began to ask questions hermeneutical questions is there a hermeneutic of the spirit and mm-hmm. if so what does it look like are mm-hmm. we just evangelicals plus tongues or yeah. what are we uh, so the whole ideas of of liberation, of drinking from our own wells. And Mm -hmm. at that time, higher education began to open up to the particular voices and at various uh, divinity schools and seminaries, you could, you could explore those questions. Whereas the generation before us, they really weren't even allowed to ask that. Mm -hmm. So it's been a good, good time of, of, of being part of that, um, of that quest. And then, we planted a church in '89 and pastored that for 27 years. It was a wonderful experience um, and wonderful people. Uh, and we're retired from that now, and I'm semi-retired from teaching. I teach part time, mm-hmm. and in this new phase of life, um, where I just believe that the Lord is calling us to, calling me to be an elder in some form. Yes. Women yeah. aren't often allowed to be elders. yeah. We just have to be older, more updated versions of a 25 year old self.
2: All right. Um, Jeez. Right.
0: Like guys still call their wife my girl, right? You know? So I can get my feminist hermeneutic on, but y'all don't want me. (laughs) me. You probably don't want that me to show up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Go
0: on with it.
2: But yeah,
0: you know, how Beth Moore, she deserves to be an elder, but her tradition. Had no space.
2: Yep, sure.
0: Uh, for that, and I have found some of the same things. I had to leave the Church of God. I went back home to the International Pentecostal Holiness Church,
1: yep.
0: mm-hmm. and um, they have welcomed me warmly. So cool. So it's been it's been a difficult last couple yep. of years, but on the other hand, God is so faithful.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I have such respect, Cheryl, for people who choose. And sometimes circumstances push you into it. Sometimes circumstances will push you away from it too. But for people who choose to do theology and ministry out of the social location that they were reared in, and mm-hmm. I hear that. I hear an affection for your background and a determination. I love the you know Gustavo Gutierrez drinking from your own wells. Like, let's mm-hmm. be the people that we are. Mm-hmm. And so your eldering of the church, I think, comes out of that deep identity that you have. Um, you're a woman that loves the scriptures, which is what this book is about, And I wanna ask you about it. So we'll just start here, but you quote James Smart and he talked about, uh, I loved this phrase, the strange silence of the Bible in the churches. And he said this, that scripture is falling silent in the preaching and the teaching of the church and in the consciousness of the Christian people, which is odd because as you point out in your book, the proliferation of Bibles is at an all time high. I think like something like the average American family is buying like one new Bible per year most homes mm-hmm. have just short of about a dozen Bibles in them, and yet Christians are not reading it anymore. It's not saturating our imaginations mm-hmm. in the way that it once did. Uh, wh- why do you think that is?
0: Well, as you as you see in the book, I, I kind of go into what I think is the history behind that, and I call that, you know, using Charles Taylor, yeah. um, mm-hmm. the history of disenchantment and yeah the burden of the modern world um, that uh, Max Weber said to science students in Germany was, you just got to bear this burden uh, to be scientific. Uh, You got to bear the burden of disenchantment Mm -hmm. Um, and Protestant forms of religion during the 20th century just became um, thoroughly modern and disenchanted and um, using Taylor's language, uh, full of ex-carnation or, The escape of, or the absence of the sacred in the tangible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting, back to the Pentecostal tradition, we had the presence of the sacred in our bodies being filled with the spirit. We had, you know, the laying on of hands, the oil. It was such a a rich, rich, Mysteriously embodied uh, form of religion, mm-hmm. but I think as we became more evangelicalized uh, and all, we we adopted some of the mm. Protestant forms of disenchantment. Reading the Bible, mm. uh, the way we, um, my grandmother, great grandmother read, you know, we were told that that was um, too experiential, too subjective, mm. and we needed to learn good fundamentalist hermeneutics yeah. yeah that that whole process of disenchanting the scripture is aligned with the disenchantment of the world and also of protestant forms of religion in the in the you know in the western world mm-hmm.
1: Hey guys, Andrew here cutting in real quick just to remind you of our upcoming Essential Church Learning Community here in Colorado Springs, February 21st and 22nd. It's a couple days of conversation around the theme of healthy church. What does it mean to be a healthy church? We talk about some of the key indicators of healthy church, We're gonna talk about developing a healthy staff and leadership culture. We're gonna talk about some of the principles of self-leadership, self-management. And then we're also very pleased to welcome special guest Caitlin Beatty, author of Celebrities for Jesus, to talk about the problem of celebrity in the contemporary church and what we can do about it. It's gonna be a great couple days together. Spots are limited. So head to our
2: website and register today. Can you think out loud with us right now? Take, I wanna like, take me to root memories for you of your great-grandmother and your grandmother. How did they read the Bible? How did they, like, tell me about their mysticism. Tell me about their experience of the Spirit. What did it look like? What did it sound like? What did you hear from them? Take us to those root memories.
0: Yeah, I don't remember either one of them because my parents were older when they married. and But I, I remember, you know, Andrew's wonderful book, uh, The Saints that you grew, That Were mm-hmm. Around You,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how they... How they um, the Bible to them was um, a presence. Yes. A space of fellowship. Yes. In using the Orthodox language, it was an icon. Yes. It was a portal. Yep. Mm-hmm. So whenever they sat down and put that Bible in their lap, Jesus came, mm-hmm. and they had sweet fellowship. And using the yep. words of Eugene Peterson, they ate the Word. They yes. Yeah. They consumed it, and it it became them. But I think mm-hmm. the critical hermeneutic there was the real presence of the spirit. Yes. Not some mild mannered. Yes. Presence that sort of pokes you and go, well, right. Pay attention. But there was um, a
1: the assumption average. that the wildness of the spirit was being released in the in the reading, right?
0: Exactly. And in the yeah. room, yeah the room. Yeah. So the same spirit who in, who inspired this the revelation of God in the text um is the same spirit who was there yeah. in the read, in the reading and yes. that is not necessarily subjective.
1: That's right. It's
0: different. It's mysterious. Yes. Uh, and again the modern disenchanted world will label that subjective experience. Right, but
1: it is it is subjective in that it's intersubjective. So who you have behind the text is the triune God, who by the Spirit has recruited these words and is using them to change the world. And then you have the human subject, and we're tangled up with one another over our conversation about
2: these words, right?
0: That is saying it so spot on. Mm. That's wonderfully said.
2: Mm. Let me ask about prayer, because I think with this, like I'm envisioning your great-grandmother or the saints that Andrew and I grew up with, and I've been in those rooms where something switches. Yep. Like, oh. man, just the the atmosphere, and you know that we're, this is as thin a space as you're gonna find on this side. So tell me about prayer. I think the moment mm-hmm. we're living in, in this kind of precious evangelical thing that we're calling church, is um, kind of a fortune cookie... Um, you know, give your tr- sweet little sentences to God. But tell me about the prayer you know about mm. that formed your great-grandmother's generation, the holiness tradition. Tell me about prayer. Mm. What? Is, what is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like?
0: Yeah, I think I would best say it was a life. Um, huh. And they kind of had the way of praying all the time. Mm-hmm. But then there were times of deep, fervent prayer. Mm-hmm. But They could. My husband's mother was one of these women we would call a prayer warrior. Mm -hmm. She didn't work outside the home, but she would literally pray hours a day. And an intercessor, a lay teacher, Mm -hmm. preacher, had 50 people in her Sunday school class. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been in the room when she prayed, Mm -hmm. and everything there was this figure ground reversal, what you're mentioning, where (laughs) all she has to say is our most precious Heavenly Father. And And the room Yeah, Everything changed. And Mm. I have seen where she would lay her hands on someone and they would be instantly healed. And yet she lived in the paradox of of suffering from kidney disease all her life uh, and could walk away in pain. After she prayed for someone who was healed. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the marks of these saints was the ability to live in the paradox. Right. Of pain and suffering, knowing and not knowing, the mystery. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to settle everything. Um, They could just say, well, I just don't know about that. Mm -hmm. You know, and and be (laughs) okay with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Our friend Chris Green, our mutual friend, he calls it... um, He's talked about Pentecostalism as like a blood and wounds mysticism, I think is like his thing, which is like, we acknowledge the wildness of the spirit and the new creation that comes through the spirit, but we're also unwilling to turn a a blind eye to the difficulties of life. I think also that means that we're unwilling to turn a blind eye to the difficulties of the text um, in a way that would preserve the mystery. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, How does... A right, Let's call it a right Pentecostalism, like that blood and wounds my, mysticism. How does that mm-hmm. help us continue to approach the Bible as a great and life-giving mystery?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this phrase people use, uh, the plain reading of the text. I just...
2: <laughs> song, yeah, it's uh, terrible.
0: It, it really was the hermeneutic of Hodge and others when they were advocating for slavery. And... Jeez. Uh, um, saying the abolitionists, you know, they just interjected their own feelings in a, a proper reading of the text was, you know, God ordained slavery, etc. Um, so there's wow. this reading I think that is um, not dependent upon all the pieces being put together, yeah. and that Scripture shows us some very dark places. And you know, there are places in the world you don't go to without the Spirit. Like, I just, there are some places you really are not safe. Mm -hmm. I think there are places in scripture that I wouldn't want to go to, like the judge's passage where mm -hmm. the concubine is thrown out, gang raped, and dies. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go there alone because I can't give a rational explanation for that. And um, there's um, the grief of the spirit that is in human brokenness that is often overlooked in fundamentalist interpretations of the text. Um, You know, where is the spirit in this text? Um, In the dust, you know, Mm -hmm. in uh, in the dust there with the woman or in the room with Lot's daughters when he volunteers to throw them out. Or, um, you know, where is the spirit of God? So uh, we don't have to gloss over, Uh I think, the um, trauma, and abuse that human humans the yep. re- records of that in the bible because it's not a final word there right. it's so uh, it's moving in a redemptive pattern a redemptive direction yep. and it's grieving you know i see the the hermeneutic of grieving yep. over the brokenness and the spirit gro- brooding over that brooding yes. over the text brooding over human life the creation right. And then transforming. So we we groan, we we that's grew, right. Yep. And we wait yep. as the spirit broods, and waiting in that not yet. Yep. Um, that's an important thing to do.
1: What's fascinating, I, just if you don't mind, I, what I love about what you're saying here and what you've got me thinking about is how the spirit is not just brooding in the passage, mm-hmm. and we're not just seeing the Spirit kind of working there and then leading it on this, you know, trajectory of, you know, this redemptive trajectory, salvation history. But the Spirit's also brooding over our interaction with it in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so when we read those awful stories and we have moments of revulsion or anger around that, that is actually part of how the Spirit is saving us through the text, not just by what's being said in the text, but by what the Spirit is doing in us as we read the text. And that lifts the text out of being uh, an artifact of history Mm -hmm. into that kind of living speech between us and God. So I wanna pivot off of that just to ask you this question. You use the descriptory, like you talk about discovering the Bible as sacred, dangerous, and mysterious. And mm-hmm. as I read you in this book, you don't use the term dangerous in a negative way. <laughs> no, dangerous is a positive descriptor. Can you talk to us about the redemptive danger of reading the Bible?
0: Yeah, there's a literary theorist, Wesley Court, who t- says, you know, a, different readings of scripture. Uh, there's this in um, more of a liberal approach. Everything just kind of, everybody's gathered in and... Um, it could be a communal text of even post liberalism, but um, there's this um, possibility, though, of uh, a centrifugal reading of the text where we are pulled outward. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense of, of being, um, of ab- reading in uh, negation. Mm-hmm. reading to be um uh, the double negative it's the cross it's it's i am mm-hmm. i am um i am being called out in reading this text into a space that might be it, to me you know i would say well that's just um that's scary or that's so to to be taken out of a safe zone yep to be pulled outward To be able to, uh, Job's uh, the speeches of God in Job is paradigmatic of this. Uh, Job's world was, in the first part of Job, a domestic, nice world. Mm -hmm. He was the center of that world. Middle part where he his speeches is pretty dystopian,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and God is pretty capricious. Yeah, but it's neither the capricious dystopian or the the pastoral nicely tended world where God seems to be the most comfortable, it's that wild creation that yeah. shows up in 38 and 38. And, and Job is taken on this cosmic tour. And I love the language of William Brown in his writings on Job. He says, you know, Job was bewilded.
1: Um, <laughs>
0: Job was deconstructed. Job was decentered. Wow. Um, all the wild beasts that he could not claim Mm-hmm. Uh, to power over. Um, so it's dangerous to to encounter a space and, and God in that space where we're not in control. Mm-hmm. Or let me use the, the language of psychology, um, of being just decentered.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, Cheryl, we need to wrap up in a second here. But uh you talked about at the beginning of the podcast you preached your first sermon at 16 years old. <laughs> You've been married for multiple decades to a preacher. Can you talk to the preachers for a second? Mm-hmm. How can they... What do you want to see the preachers do? How do you want to see the preachers treat the Bible and give it to their congregations?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, treating the Bible very carefully with an understanding that it is um, a space where uh, this... To the trying life. So we have to abide in that space, live in that space, and then reach out and draw people to it. Mm. The old paradigm of preaching, um, I think, who called it this, Edward Farley, is the bridge paradigm, which mm. is all pretty right. much a cognitive yes. thing. So here's the text, and here's the audience, and the preacher makes Builds this bridge. bridge of reasoned, deductive thinking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So therefore go and... These are five principles, four principles, rather than um, the, the preacher um, standing in the space mm. um, and the, uh, opening, uh, opening the door in that scripture. You now, it's multiple dimensions and just inviting people into that particular dimension of the text. Mm. The Spirit coming and dancing with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. so that the Word is um, allowed to be um, freed in the congregation and uh, dances over the congregation, lives. And the sense of stewarding the Word, um, Mm -hmm. dancing with the Spirit, rather than helping people make these logical connections that they will forget the next week, it's, it, it can be deeply, um, you know, you can tease out a chiastic structure and it yep. can be really good textual work, but the way you do it and um, there's a, there's the word, you know, the, the living word and Christ is that living word and mm. we're just invited in to help the spirit, you know, Script that script that world using Walter Brueggemann, the alternative yeah. world, the alternative imagination, and bring people into um, into that sacred space. And they don't. And you know, when it happens, you you can't make it happen. You don't. Mm-hmm. And then, but there, when you're there, you know, I don't want to leave. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Cheryl Bridges Johns, thanks for being on the podcast with us. The book is re-enchanting the text, Discovering the Bible is Sacred, Dangerous, and Mysterious. You can pre-order it. It's due out May 16th. We're so grateful that you joined us today, Cheryl.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a delight.